Welcome to Orthopod, a podcast about the people of orthopedics and their stories. We understand that we all play many roles in our careers and lives, and it is these very stories that ultimately inform our successes and failures. Hey folks, it's Mo Bendari from Orthopod. Uh, welcome again to another show. We're going to talk today with three individuals about graduate school and benchmarks for graduate school. It's becoming more and more important, and the questions we get asked lots more than we used to is, do we need graduate school to be successful in orthopedics or musculoskeletal uh, research in any meaningful way, or can we get by uh, with uh, appropriate mentorship and training? So today in studio, we have Kim Madden, who's an associate professor in the Department of Surgery. Kim's completed her PhD recently and has been taken on this position at McMaster University for the last year or so. We also have Mark Phillips, who is a graduate student. He's transferred from his Master's of Science to his PhD and is also doing research in musculoskeletal area. And then we have an orthopedic resident who is contemplating and I believe will be considering doing his Master's. has just been accepted into a Master's program, Sepper Ektiari, who is an orthopedic resident at McMaster University. Hi, folks. How are you? Good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So here's the debate. The debate is, do we need graduate training to be successful in research. And I'll start with you, Sepper, simply because in orthopedics, we get the debate. In orthopedics, we've seen tons and tons of literature that says that there is a declining species called the academic surgeon. And then there's, you know, requisites in most programs around the world where, you know, trainees should be doing some degree of research. At McMaster, there is a research expectation. And one would say that many, many more people graduate orthopedics without research, formal research graduate school, and may go on to work in academic centers. So why do we need a master's or a PhD? So I think for me, one of the big things about deciding to do a graduate degree is having formal training and the the steps to doing research properly. And I think a lot of those things are, you know, you can learn them on your own, you can learn them through mentorship, but to have the opportunity to actually dedicate time to it and learn it it, it's the same as the same way that we dedicate five years to learning how to do every step of every specific surgery that we need to learn to do. I think if you want to be able to to lead big studies and uh, big clinical trials, that it's important to know the steps that go into that and to learn them properly from people who have have experience in that, rather than just flying by the seat of your pants. Right. So it used to be historically that you, you can graduate without any. Um, you know, orthopedics, for example, without any graduate level training, and you'd go on and do research, you could be highly successful. Prior to you getting in, so you haven't started formally your master's program, how many publications or papers have you been involved in? Uh, about 30. 30, right? So clearly, one would argue, well, you know, you're doing pretty well without it. Your hypothesis, though, and maybe Mark or Kim, you can speak to it. Do you think that Sepper is likely to get better at doing research? Is the quality of his research going to get better? He's got 30. He's demonstrated he can publish. He's demonstrated he can do all this. And this is, this is the real debate that happens, right? Because do we need to be setting a new threshold for how much research training you need? And what is the absolute added value of graduate training? For me, it's less about the formal classes. They help a lot to sort of consolidate knowledge. But actually having those two years, three years, four years yeah, set aside yeah, to yeah, actually yeah. have protected time for research is yeah. really what did it for me, more like an apprenticeship model. 
Um, you know, in four months, you can learn to do a pretty good systematic review, and then you can do systematic reviews for the rest of your life or whatever. You yes. get better at them as you go along. But when I was working full-time in research, I had, what was it, like seven years with you or yeah, something, right, which yeah. was those seven years of protected research time, I learned how to do multi-center randomized trials, something right. that you wouldn't have a chance to do if you were just doing a project here and there. So I think it's less about quantity of papers and more about the quality and depth that you can get from that experience of having that time set aside. Yeah, I was going to say um, you can certainly sort of go about it without graduate school, but the one thing that you really learn is um, the, the bigger things like big trials. Um, there's probably a, a practical barrier to... Um, obtaining funding and those type of things if you were to embark on trying to do a trial on your own without any formal training um, it's, it's probably going to be a practical barrier to that um, as well as uh, just sort of the nuanced types of issues that you're going to come up with are, are things you'll learn in graduate school to okay, address. Okay, but is that enough for someone to say I'm going to spend the money, right, because you're spending, I don't know, how much does it cost for graduate training per year on average let's say in the Canadian system your tuition's four or five thousand three thousand mm-hmm. five thousand for master's seven thousand okay. for PhD okay so, right, right. so, so that, you know, and you're looking at multiple years right? so it's a fairly reasonable investment of, of time and of, of, of your of, of uh, cash flow out does it actually lead to a better situation right and and is it man? Is it mandated? So I think the point that you you brought forward, Kim, is, you know, having um, additional training letters is important because it gives some degree of assurance to others that hey, you know, they've been through the principles that they know the building blocks of what it takes to do research and they've been, at least been exposed to it. Can they do it? No one knows. You can graduate with a master's or a PhD, and quite frankly, never have done as you said a big trial. Right? It happens in fact more common than not. But do you have the building blocks to do it? The argument is. You need to have the PhD to still be able to do trials. There's many more people doing trials without PhDs than there are with, right? And this gets back again to the debate around hiring um, individuals. Some programs have made it mandatory that we won't hire faculty without a minimum of a master's. You may have heard of that. Uh, McMaster certainly has a general interest in this area. University of Toronto, for an example, has an interest. And I think there are many, many other programs, both you know, in Canada and internationally, that have that same sort of branding. So once again, what is that skill that we're picking up that you couldn't just get from spending seven years with someone or five years with someone? I think it's, a, it's an important point. And I, I think that you know, I have students who ask, who were getting involved in research at the med school or undergrad level, and they ask, you know, how much research do I need to do? Should I be doing research? And to me, the way I look at it is if it's something you're interested in and you're motivated about, then you're going to make the most of it and you will become better yeah. for spending the time. And so, you know, I'm doing a master's in ClinEpi yeah. because I'm interested in that and because eventually I hope to, to be in a position where I'm involved with, with large trials right. down the road. Right. But people can do master's in, in other areas if they're more interested in those things. Right. And so I agree. I don't think it should be, oh, you know, I'm doing residency, I want a job, so I have to do this specific master's. Right, right, right. I think, I think you know, definitely what you don't want to do is work to the test or work to what's expected. I think you should figure out what it is, you know, that you want to do as a general point. But let me ask you this. Um, if I can put you on the spot, Supper, yeah, sure. again a bit. So you've done, you've been pr- pretty 
pretty prolific for a trainee. I'd say, you know, the average trainee in orthopedics over their five years might have one or two papers, right? If you look across all programs around the world, it's, you know, it's about the median is between zero and one. So to have 30 and you're in your third? Second year. Second year, right? So you have, you're, you're, likely, you're likely on track to have 50 some odd papers before you graduate. The 30 you have done, what would be the primary approach to research that you've used in those 30 papers? So systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Systematic reviews and meta Okay. So, I mean, so I think, you know, systematic reviews and meta-analyses are what I believe are the modern-day case series, right? We, when in prior to, you know, 10, 20 years ago, most graduate trainees, when I was in orthopedics in 95, 94, we got in, in fact, the majority of our academic day uh, presentations were case series, you know, series of X number of patients, and they were thoughtful reviews. Really, what I think we've progressed to is that is the systematic review, which is often of case series, it seems these days, the, you know, the review of choice. Nothing good or bad about it, but that's just what's happened, right? So do you feel you're confident or capable uh, and you need additional training to get you to do other things? Or could you just work with a, a group and get that experience? So for me, I think the experience I've had is, has been invaluable in learning some of those basic skills. Uh, and really learning how to uh, look at literature critically. And so right. when, you know, when I'm doing these systematic reviews, meta-analyses, when you're dissecting each paper and trying to understand whether or not it, it fits in with your review, whether or not it's, it's high quality or not, yeah. you understand the, some of those basic principles. But like Mike was saying, I think to take the next step and to actually try and you know, move well, on. Well, let me ask you this. Let me just ask you a point bluntly, and you, you can jump in. Is there a ceiling if your career is just doing meta-analysis and systematic reviews. And I've done a lot, so like I, I'm not speaking, I'm not putting, I'm not saying negative things to those who do them. I think they're, they're wonderful, they're great tools. But if that is your primary focus, is do you have a ceiling going forward I mean, you think in terms depends. of your ability to progress academically? It depends on how you go about doing it because you have the grade group at McMaster, for example, who is doing really, really excellent, like world-class, high-impact systematic reviews of large trials, and they're using the grade approach to you know, gain credibility, and then they're using that to put up practice-changing guidelines, ideally. Right. So that is one trajectory where systematic reviews will serve you very well. But if you are in surgery, we don't really have that many RCTs. And sure. We, we don't really have the, the meat behind it to kind of go in that direction like right. internal medicine or cardiology would. Oh, and I, I'm all with you. But I guess the point is, can you make a career, right, you know, and continue to go up if that is your only type of publication you do in your career? So you could have a thousand such papers are you likely to be more successful than someone who might have lesser number of papers but a different type of design? And the argument I'm trying to get to is if, if you all believe that and your colleagues believe that, hey, we can just write meta-analysis and systematic reviews and we can keep going, you can go from 30 to 50 to 100 and you continually have academic, you know, and you continue to rise academically, you don't need a master's. Right? You can do it now. Right. In other words, you, you're, the additional knowledge you're gaining isn't necessarily going to benefit you to the pathway you want. Yeah, I think you are to an extent, but I mean, it's obviously not a rule. Um, but you are limited, or your ceiling is the trialists, because you're doing a systematic review. Say, there's some novel topic in orthopedics that y you want to look at. You can't really do a thoughtful 
systematic review that answers that question until trials start coming out. So well, people do with case series, so you know. With case, yeah, yeah. But, no, no, but again, you guys are you guys are um, generally. I know you're just dancing around the question. Right? <laughs> the question is, all you got to do is say mo. No, you can't. You can't make a career out of doing case series. You can't do systematic reviews. It's not. It's not the future. The future is not going to be ba great. Research is not going to come from case series of meta analyses of case series. Right? It's not going to happen. So I, I think I agree. Yeah. I mean, I don't think yeah. great new ideas are not going to come from reviewing the same things over and over. Right. Again. Right. Right. So, but so I think the flip side of that is, practically speaking, could you work at an academic institution and mostly do systematic reviews? Yeah. Sure. You can. sure. We, we, we yeah. know lots of people. We know lots of people right. who <laughs> publish quote another one all the time. Right. Just another one and another one and another one and yeah. another one. Totally fine. That is your ceiling. I believe it, and I truly believe it. But I'm, I'm curious if, if that's permeated. Because, you know, there's a difference between quantity and quality. Right. And I do think that even in meta-analysis, you know, a single, to your point, Kim, meta-analysis of high-quality research, like really high-quality trials, can be highly impactful in directing where you're going to go. But we sometimes get blinded to volume, right? And so I... For all of you, I think it's wonderful that you guys are pursuing this because I think it's really important to have the insight. I grew up probably doing, in my first three or four years, more systematic reviews than I probably care to think about, right? But the most impactful research I've ever done has nothing to do with systematic reviews, unfortunately. It just doesn't do, have anything to do with it, and, and you have to move forward. So I do think that there is this general uh, movement that we have to be thinking differently and bigger, and I think that the more you can stay learning and the more you can stay involved in the in, in the in the experience of research so as much as three letters after your name whether it's an msc or a phd matter i think the fact that you're in a phd the letters are less important than the fact that you are now committed to a group of individuals like-minded in an environment that keeps you simulated and keeps you thinking if you can have that environment without any degree do it like i would 100% say in my mind, just do it. But oftentimes, it is you need the protected time, and the only way to get protected time is to put yourself into a, a formalized training program that really forces you to think about these things that you wouldn't think before. Is that a reasonable assessment from your perspective? Have you experienced that in would, the last few minutes here? Yeah, I would say so. And and to the point of, of putting yourself around like-minded individuals, there's sort of this sense in, a, in I mean, our program, and anyway, I can't speak to other programs, but I think it's probably generally similar, is there's this sort of environment of collaboration, and you gain so much from working with others that are also have this similar mindset, opposed to uh, trying to just squeeze in research on your own time. Yeah, it's hard. And it, it, yeah, you gotta, yeah, like, you know, priorities happen. And, and, and when you put money into something, that. you feel accountable. To it, right. I mean, right. it is right. You got to have you got to what we say skin in the game a bit, right? So you put some money into something, you do feel like you want to, yeah. you know, you, you want to spend the energy and time because now you're investing in your future to some degree. Yeah, and I, I think you know, just a final point on yeah. the, the the systematic reviews and the meta analyses is I see them. It's a tool in your toolbox, right? Absolutely. And I think that they serve a very important role, but when they're done in the bigger context of setting you up for a trial or... Absolutely, right. Or oh, listen, we do... Pointing we, out gaps system, in the literature. We do systematic reviews all the time, yeah. but we don't do systematic reviews as a means to an end. It's a means to a new beginning yeah. and understanding a problem. However, last point, <laughs> of the 30 systematic reviews you've done, how many have led to trials? How many, how many trials have you pursued? 
none so right, far. Right, right. So the point is, do one systematic review promote a trial, right? Like systematic reviews shouldn't be an end. Right? It should be the beginning. So I think on that note, we will continue this discussion. We've got lots <laughs> to talk about. So I want to thank him, thank Mark, thank Sepper for, for being in the hot seat, so to speak. And I don't think we resolved the issue, but I think we've made a little bit forward progress. So for all of you, happy research, and uh, we'll be back again on another session. Thanks so much. Thanks for watching Orthopod. Stay tuned for more episodes. 